Hello and welcome to Naked Neuroscience, the podcast dedicated to the most fascinating organ in the human body, our brains. I'm your host, James Titko from the Naked Scientist team. And today we're taking a closer look at traumatic brain injuries, TBIs for short. We'll be hearing from the doctors who are treating them and a former soldier who is suffering from a host of mental health conditions as a consequence of his military service. I wake up every morning with a sheer dread, just an unimaginable amount of anxiety and dread. Mm. And then I go about my day. And then again, the next morning, same thing all over again. And, and at some point in there, I said, I, I, I can't, I can't, something's wrong with me. We'll hear all about Sean's story in just a moment. And then a bit later on, having the machine equivalent, so like mechanical equivalent of our neurons and our synapses in a single chip. How scientists are harnessing the incredible efficiency of our brains to break new ground in computing performance. The brain, weighing about a kilo and a bit, and with a volume of a litre and a half, is extremely delicate. It has a consistency like porridge and floats, encased by the skull, bathed in cerebrospinal fluid that keeps it suspended and cushioned. But some knocks to the head occur extremely rapidly, which can cause some parts of the brain to move more rapidly than other parts, tearing the tissue and breaking the thin threads of nerve connections that link different regions together. This can cause the progressive loss of nerve cells, changing brain chemistry and ultimately function, which can lead to an altered mood and cognitive disabilities. This type of damage is called a traumatic brain injury, TBI. There's recently been some promising medical progress in the field, though, and we'll hear from the clinicians who are trying to improve the outcomes for people affected by the condition a bit later on. But first, what is it actually like to live with a TBI? Sean served for 27 years as a Marine in the US Army. Concussions and head knocks can happen to anyone, of course. Sport is also looking very closely at this issue. But they're particularly common in the military and can inflict wounds that aren't always immediately apparent. I can't put my finger on an exact uh, moment when I, I can I can say a TBI happened. But as a forward air controller, I dropped 99 bombs from the air. And most of those we were in inside of what was called danger close. So inside the blast radius of the bomb. And so that impact, I really believe, is the most devastating impact because you can imagine a, uh, a soft brain inside of a hard shell skull getting uh, racked around by the overpressure from a bomb, I'd say 40 or 50 of those, I was well within inside the, the blast radius. So I think that rung my bell uh, a number of times and, and created some injury. I was in the back of a, uh, what we called a deuce and a half, a, a large truck, transport truck that got hit by an ID and, and fell off the side, and, you know, saw stars and all that kind of thing. So a number of uh, very specific instances, but generally it's a, um, a prolonged exposure I see. So it's fair to say in your personal experience, there's no one big KO you can recall to. It's more a series of more mild ones, which we know now can have this cumulative effect. Absolutely. And as I got out of the military, our, our Veterans Administration, our VA, does a, uh, a profile. They were looking for very specific concussive, you lost memory, you lost sight, you, you know, you, you were out cold, those kind of things. And I couldn't ask, answer those questions. And so wasn't specifically diagnosed with TBI, but I believe that quite honestly, most of the guys that I've, I've gone through this program with 
they feel it's it's the same thing. It's that prolonged exposure, number of different weapon systems that we go off that are very lar- loud and, and concussive. And at what point did you start to consider that TBI might be what you were suffering from in the years following? Well, it took the advice of the VA and I followed as many of the different protocols that they offered and uh, had a disability designation by the VA of, of PTSD. And I, when you're a leader, you just kind of file that back in your backpack and say, I, I, I can deal with this. So I kind of dealt with it for a number of years. It was over a period of a number of different things happening in my life that, that really created high, high stress that I actually started talking to, reaching out and talking to some other friends that were going through some things. It was about my mid-40s that I, I started noticing a, a significant memory loss. I couldn't recall things, or I, I couldn't even remember names of people that I uh, I knew pretty well. I mean, obviously, the ones I knew really well, I, I, I did, but it was really that memory loss plus not being able to handle some of the stressors that I, I, I thought maybe there was something go, else going on. I see. So the memory loss combined with those kind of neuropsychiatric conditions. You mentioned PTSD. Did you receive any treatment? Yeah, I volunteered at the uh, VA for a number of them. Went through speaking with psychologists and therapists, went through mindfulness program, and and none of them really seemed to help, even uh, through a psychiatrist who ordered up Zoloft, which, as you can imagine, any any of us that that are on the front lines, you have your, your super aggression and your uh, high activity, and we kind of thrive on that. Mm. And the Zoloft just made me feel like I was numbing out. So I, I went through a number of them and types of therapy, and none of them seemed to work. So is that what gave you the impetus to seek alternative treatment? Well, actually, you know, like I said, as a leader, an officer, you tend to think, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And and you file it back in your backpack. And, it, and at some point, the backpack gets too heavy to carry. And I'd gone through a period where starting in 2017, my son committed suicide. Uh, that led to a divorce. I'm so sorry. Shortly, uh, shortly after that, within about a year or two, lost a job. And then uh, I decided to go build my own business. Got into uh, a property transaction that uh, didn't work out. I lost about $650,000. You can see all these things were building up Mm -hmm. that I finally realized I couldn't do it on my own. So I reached out to a couple other friends from the military and I saw a change in what they were going through and was like, okay, there's something different here. So I started talking to them. They said, oh yeah, you know, we went through this treatment, this uh, therapy and it just changed my life. And so I thought, ah, you know, okay, I'm not really, really sure about, it was really a psychedelic therapy that they were describing. And it's like, I have never taken a drug in my life. I'm not a, I'm not really into the whole psychedelic thing. That's a little creepy. And then about three years ago, I would wake up every morning with a sheer dread, just an unimaginable amount of anxiety and dread mm. where I actually had formulated a, a, uh, a suicide plan. And then I'd, I'd, I'd last about an hour in the morning. I'd go to take a shower and try to shake it off. And then I'd realize, you know what? That's not me. And then I'd go about my day. And then again, the next morning, same thing all over again. And, and at some point in there, I said, I, I, I can't, I guess something's wrong with me. And it's noticeably not me. 
there's something inside that's that's off and uh and that's when i started to look at what the options were and started to talk a little bit more to my friends that had had been through this uh this medicine and this this psychedelic therapy u.s marine sean thank you so much to him for being so open about his experiences we'll hear more about how he's getting on and the treatment he just referred to later on in the show but first we're going to hear from former staff sergeant julianne fulford She completed two tours of Afghanistan during her 16 years of service in the British Army, and she's now a member of the clinical team at the military veterans charity Help for Heroes. She oversees the care of many veterans with TBIs and was able to provide me with this medical overview. Big thing with brain injuries is there's nothing you can do about the initial brain injury. The biggest thing in the very short term, the acute phase, is to prevent the secondary brain injury. So you have your brain, cerebral spinal fluid, which is the fluid that cushions the brain, and blood. If one of those things increases, then the other has to decrease. And we really, really worry about the pressure inside the brain. So in the very, very early stages, a lot of the interventions that happen are very, very small. And it's a very sort long period of time before you start to see any big changes they disrupt the the functioning of the brain what does that look like over the medium to long term what can it look like so it can be very interchangeable it's quite easy to recognize when somebody's had a massive brain injury because often you'll be able to see this physical disability their speech might be impaired there's easier things to spot what we sometimes start with is a patient who can be very agitated confused and be often quite different to the person that they were before a lot of my veterans were injured when they were really young so it's almost like the brain has stopped and the last thing they remember is being that 26 27 year old young soldier sailor airman uh, woman and then we're sort of picking up the pieces from there and trying to help them now become the person that they are post-injury looking at mild tbis these can be quite difficult sometimes to even recognize they've happened can't they i mean it's yeah. quite it's more obvious when someone's had a, a moderate to severe one their trauma's more extreme absolutely but the mild ones can be difficult to diagnose but still play a part in long-term health consequences yeah so i look at these as like the walking wounded or the silent sick sometimes mild um, brain injuries often are diagnosed late because they don't show up on scans and it's often other practitioners that might pick up on it like your occupational therapists your physiotherapists or somebody who's involved family members because they're not quite acting the way that they used to act often with brain injuries people can be perceived as being aggressive or having anger issues but most of the cases I see there isn't anger it's anxiety it's them not understanding how to explain to people that they do have a brain injury. I wonder if you could go into some detail on mental health conditions like anxiety depression and PTSD that people might suffer as a result of a TBI. Yeah, so many of our veterans will have sustained their traumatic brain injuries in unusual traumatic circumstances. So on the whole, the population, civilian and military, about 6% suffer PTSD. So we're quite balanced in that respect. However, the trigger is different. So a lot of our veterans 
the last thing they will remember from their injury is say being out on patrol being out on the ground with their friends and then this catastrophic event happening and then waking up back in the UK thinking gosh what's happened to me where am I and trying to re-examine their lives some of the anxiety and depression what we have to remember is people join the military because often they want the excitement or they want a challenge when they sustain an injury their lives completely change that's a huge shock and a huge adjustment so I think that has a lot to play with the anxiety and depression side of things Mm. and I suppose that could be a theory as to why as I understand it some of the mainstream treatments for conditions like anxiety, depression and PTSD, so things like antidepressants or cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT, they seem to be less effective treatments when applied to military veterans who've acquired those conditions as a result of TBIs. Yeah, I think think the big thing is recognising what the issue is as I said there's nothing we can do about the initial brain injury but what's really really important is understanding what the trigger is what's triggering the anxiety what's triggering the the depression is it that what the veteran remembers from the situation is it the loss the grief that they've sustained not just losing a friend you know loss of who they are I think what works really really well for veterans is the holistic approach so ensuring that everyone's involved who can be within their care and a huge part of the treatment is getting the individual to accept that they might not necessarily ever get back to their pre-injury state and then allowing them to understand what's left and how we can utilize that to help them move forward. Julianne Fulford from the clinical team at Help for Heroes there. As well as the long-term care she oversees for veterans suffering from the most severe cases of TBI, Julianne also touched on the silent sick or walking wounded. Those whose more mild, less easily detected TBIs slip through the net sometimes, but are still responsible for significant health problems. The problem is that TBI diagnostics are still pretty rudimentary. MRI scans are useful for spotting structural changes in the brain, lesions for example, which might be an indication of severe TBI, but they fail to detect the more subtle changes in brain functionality associated with mild traumatic brain injury. A team of researchers at Harvard University have been working on a solution. Using part of the body's immune response to head trauma, they found a biomarker which they can take advantage of to ensure fewer mild TBIs go undiagnosed. They're called macrophages, and here's Professor Samir Mitra Gotri to explain. So macrophages are body's immune cells They are among the most common immune cells. And what is unique about them is that whenever there is damage or inflammation in tissue, they infiltrate into the tissue and they become a part of the tissue. And we figured that even though the trauma may be subtle, that the structure may not be visibly changed, the macrophages may know that the trauma has happened and may infiltrate into the brain And maybe we can use that signal to detect the extent of trauma. Could they be getting to the brain for any other reason other than a TBI? That's quite possible. Macrophages chase inflammation. So if there are other reasons to go into the brain, they very well might. But in the case of TBI, if we suspect that the brain has suffered a trauma, which typically what happens when you bring in a subject because a fall has happened, a trauma has happened, And in that case, if you see the inflammation, if you see the macrophages going into the brain, 
that is a good way to kind of see whether the trauma has happened. I see. Where did the idea come from to use macrophages in TBI diagnostics? What was the leap there? So the need to use macrophages really comes from the physiology. The challenge has been how do you see them? They are not visible under MRI. So we wanted to attach a contrast agent to them so that we can track these macrophages. Now that turned out to be quite a challenge because macrophages are bodies professional eaters. They will basically eat whatever they bind to. In fact, that's their job. So how do you attach something to the macrophage without having it eaten by the macrophage? We had made a discovery a while ago that macrophages cannot internalize disc-shaped particles when they bind to them. So we figured out a way to make a discoidal backpack and we put gadolinium in it. This is gadolinium, a commonly used contrast agent, a substance which will light up on an MRI like a Christmas tree, which you were able to put in the disc-shaped hydrogel backpack you developed, worn by macrophages as they travel to the brain to fight inflammation from a mild TBI. Indeed. And that's what we call a GLAM, uh, which is basically a micron-sized hydrogel disc that is loaded with a high concentration of gadolinium. And that becomes our tracker of the macrophage, wherever it is in the body. Gadolinium is a small molecule entity. So when you inject it in the blood, it is cleared pretty quickly within minutes from the body. And in fact, it is cleared by kidney filtration. And that's been one of the challenges those patients who may be suffering from kidney malfunctioning, they cannot really use current version of gadolinium very effectively. So when it came to putting gadolinium in our backpacks, two constraints had to be met. One is that gadolinium needs to make contact with water because that's the mechanism by which it provides a contrast. And so to allow the water molecules to come in close contact with gadolinium, we went with the hydrogel designed for the backpack. So it's very porous, water molecules can come in. And the second design factor was that because hydrogels are porous, gadolinium can potentially leach out. To stop that from happening, we covalently conjugated gadolinium to the backpack. And to make that happen, we had to make a special version of the gadolinium molecule, which can be incorporated into the backpack and by doing these two modifications, we were able to make backpacks which can provide a strong enough contrast in MRI. And did they work? Have you tested the effectiveness of your GLAM hitchhikers and what were the results? They did work. So we tested the GLAMs in a pig model. That work was done in collaboration with researchers at Boston Children's Hospital. The way this was tested is that my TBI was induced in pigs. And when we injected these animals with glams, we saw that we were able to see the occurrence of mild TBI under the conditions where the conventional gadolinium contrast could not provide an indication. An incredible bit of science. Is there the potential for this sort of work to be extrapolated into other diagnostic tools for us to use the immune system for helping to diagnose other diseases? We believe so. At the heart of it, we are essentially tracking 
the motion of macrophages. And macrophages are very sensitive indicator of inflammation and injury. So by being able to see where they are and how they are moving about, I think one can make a, a very sensitive and very differential diagnosis of many other conditions. Uh, what we have done in this study is that used it to detect mild TBI. But we do believe that there is potential to extrapolate these to other indications and the research will have to be done to get a better assessment as to what those indications would be and how would this method be superior compared to the current standards for those diseases. Samir Mitragotri from Harvard University. As we've been learning, the earlier we detect mild TBIs, the more we can do for people who go on to develop neuropsychiatric conditions. But there may be hope now, too, for people for whom depression, anxiety and PTSD have taken hold. A new treatment, the psychoactive drug Ibogaine, which is illegal in many countries, has shown some promise. And I've been speaking to Nolan Williams, who is leading research at Stanford University into the use of Ibogaine to alleviate the plight of veterans suffering from the fallout of TBIs, where 30 US ex-special forces were treated with the drug in a clinic in Mexico. I started by asking him if we know why mainstream treatments for depression and anxiety generally prove to be less effective for people who have suffered a TBI. One of my colleagues, Sean Siddiqui, published a paper, I think six months ago, in Science Translational Medicine, showing that the neural signature of psychiatric symptoms, particularly depression associated with TBI, is different than depression not associated with TBI. And so it makes sense that you'd have less efficacy because the problem is structural. You know, if it's mild TBI, you've kind of shocked or stunned that part of the cortex. If it's more severe TBI, you actually have a structural lesion in that spot. And so it's going to be harder for a drug to work that's really kind of intended to affect a problem where the brain's intact. But there's still a lot of work to do to fully understand it. It's hard to model some of the psychiatric symptoms that are associated with TBI in lower mammals and in, in, uh, rodent models, just because those models are kind of incomplete for complex psychiatric illness. But naturally, the unique challenges facing those seeking to treat TBI patients like yourself means we need to search for new solutions. And that brings us on to Ibogaine. What is it and where does it come from? So Ibogaine is an alkaloid of the Iboga root bark from Gabon, Africa. Some of the Gabonese referred to as Bawiti, those that use the iboga root bark as a sacrament that's been going on, we think, for hundreds of years. The French isolated ibogaine out of the iboga root bark in the early 1900s, and, and by 1930, it became a prescription medicine in France and was utilized until, I think, 65 and then they had their version of the Controlled Substances Act. What was it used to treat? It was kind of a, a really low dose, is kind of a stimulant. They thought maybe it was an anti-anxiety drug. And then uh, came off the pharmacy list with that Controlled Substances Act. And then was kind of re-explored as an anti-addiction substance when it was brought underground and then used in clinics in countries where it's legal. Interesting. And we know all the work going on with psychedelic therapies for anxiety and depression and other conditions. The illegality of the drug makes it difficult for you to conduct this study? Was it 
legally and a bit knotty. It's got this very interesting kind of legality situation to it where it's actually legal in a lot of places. It's legal in Australia and New Zealand. It's got this indeterminate status in Canada and Mexico. And so there are quite a few countries where they have IBM clinics for addiction where there's a big dose given and it's given much less frequently. So generally once, maybe twice for opioid addiction in particular, all the other addictions have been treated. So when we came into this story, there was a handful of veterans that had gone down to Mexico and taken this for their kind of wounds of war. So traumatic brain injury, PTSD, depression. And they told me they had this pretty dramatic improvement in symptomatology. You know, I talked to them, I interviewed them about what they were experiencing before. It was pretty profound and decided to construct a study around this phenomenon. So that's why we partnered with a clinic down in, um, in Mexico and were able to, to treat folks after we did a, a baseline assessment and then we were able to do follow-up assessments after that. Nolan Williams and one of the participants of Nolan's study was Sean, whom we heard from earlier. Here's what he had to say about his experience with Ibogaine. Going into it, there's some anxiety, there's some unknown. But when I came out, it was truly like, everybody's got to do this. It, mm. it was that that much of a change. And I'll, I'll give you an example of the scientific proof. There was a test of 12 words. The uh, psychologist gave me 12 words. And I noticed in the first round that they were th- groups of three. So like fruits, jobs, and sports kind of in my mind figured them out and she goes okay read them back to me and i read nine of the 12 back and then she did it again i got 11 of the 12 did it again and i I think i got again 11 of the 12. immediately after the ibogaine she read off all 12 and i immediately gave her all 12. Mm. and she says do it again i said well i I got them right she's doing again the other thing they did was a month later we came back and we talked for a little bit she said i gave you 12 words do you remember what those were and I rattled off all 12. Having, so it, both a noticeable difference in memory loss before and memory gained after, and then also just a clarity mm. that gave peace. It's the best way to describe it. There was just a peace afterwards. And as I understand it, of the other veterans who took part in the trial, their experience was very similar. They also saw these cognitive improvements and those improvements to their psychiatric conditions, to their moods? Well, as I mentioned in my story, I lost my son Jack at 17. And so suicide was part of what I knew. But even beyond that, we were losing some say 22, some say 23 veterans a day to suicide. Hmm. Since I left the service, I have 13 friends that have committed suicide. And so, um, in fact, and I confirmed this as well just recently, None of the participants that have ever gone through this program have committed suicide. Mm. So I know that's anecdotal, but it's it's proof enough to me that there's a difference. And if there's anything that can stop suicide, why not? It needs to be investigated deeper and it could potentially help things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and, and other mental health disorders. But specifically in my case, just the change in people's perspective and awareness If that alone stops suicide, then it's worth uh, investigating further. A very clear message from Sean then. And here's Nolan Williams on the results of his study. Yeah, you know, so people came in with kind of mild to moderate 
disability on the Hudas disability scale beforehand and after. Nobody um, met criteria for disability at the one-month mark. We had folks with dramatic improvements in depression, anxiety, PTSD. So it was a um, pretty striking reduction in symptomatology. Extremely effective by the results of your study then. Do we understand the neurobiology of how it was able to alleviate the veterans' conditions? We're working on that now. We have neuroimagingst um, around this and EEG um, that we're analyzing now to try to to try to understand some of the mechanism. But it's early days. You know, this is a first shot on goal. There's going to be a lot of work on on how ibogaine works. And presumably, understanding it better is key to making this a potential mainstream treatment. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. Could this? potentially be used for people in the future who suffer from psychiatric conditions not sustained from TBI, do you think? Does it perhaps have broader potential? Yeah, I think that, you know, what we're looking at potentially is a, a neuro rehab drug. I think that part's really exciting, the ability to use use a substance like this to be able to, um, to have an effect on uh, a broader range of symptomatology, maybe people with, with MS-related disability or stroke-related disability. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're back with Naked Neuroscience. I'm James Titko. And to finish today's program, we're going to be delving into the world of neuromorphic computing. Supercomputers are the backbone of a broad range of scientific disciplines, modelling the weather, disease diagnosis, AI chatbots, the list goes on. The problem is they're often extremely vast machines requiring huge amounts of electricity to run. The world's most powerful supercomputer, the HP Enterprise Frontier, requires 22.7 megawatts to run. That's roughly the same amount to power 17,000 homes. It's for this reason that scientists are looking at alternative avenues to achieve the amount of compute to complete their data-intensive research projects. Neuromorphic engineers believe the answer could reside in the amazing efficiency of our brains, and 2024 is set to be a big year for the field. I caught up with Domenico Vicinanza, Associate Professor of Intelligent Systems and Data Science at Anglia Ruskin University, to find out more. The idea comes from the observation that... Even the most powerful supercomputer in the world cannot compete with the computing power that our brain has. We can truly multitask. We can walk and talk and speak on the phone and observe things and avoiding obstacles. We can truly do all these things at the same time. And that's fascinating. There is no supercomputer in the world that can do that in the way we human beings can. A computer can simulate that multitasking by just doing a little bit of each single action, each single task, and then quickly moving to the next one. That characteristics is related to the different computing architecture that our brain has. That's the reason why scientists were inspired by the different approach of our brain. And our brain doesn't overheat. It only weighs 1.3, 1.4 kilos, consumes 20 watts, like a lamp bulb in our fridge, and it can do the equivalent, well, it's actually more powerful in terms of, of basic computation per second than the most powerful supercomputer. So there must be something that we are missing, that some lessons to learn in some way. So that's the idea. But 
how does one achieve that practically? What aspect of our brain can scientists try to emulate inside technology? So to answer this question, we need to think about a little bit about how our brain is made. We know a normal traditional computer, I'm always simplifying here, but it has one computing unit, could be more than one, but I say one computing unit, one memory, a bus, which is a highway where data are going to and from. That's it. This is the way a normal computer works. Brain doesn't have that. There are no specialized area in the brain that are just dedicated to computing or just dedicated to memory. We can think about our brain as a really intricate network of very simple computing and memory elements that are together. So where there is computation power, there is also memory in our brain. And that is absolutely brilliant. And the other very important thing is that all these areas are talking to each other to trillions of connections. So that means when we are learning something new, we learn a new skill, like pitching a ball, for example, or learning to a new language. What we are doing, we are not just putting few lines of code somewhere in our brain and that will be retrieved. We are reshaping our brain. The connections between all the neurons that will describe and serve that specific purpose, building new connections. That kind of flexibility is fascinating, is inspiring. That is one of the things that scientists are trying to reproduce, having the machine equivalent, like mechanical equivalent of our neurons and our synapses in a single chip. And again, the idea is to focus on connecting them with, in the case of, of the new supercomputers that are going to be launched, we are talking about hundreds of trillions of connections. That is the power. You've prefaced it there. This field of neuromorphic engineering, neuromorphic computing has reached something of a watershed moment or is going to this year, isn't it? Can you tell me about Deep South and whether this is where neuromorphic computing really starts to kick on now? I think, yes, neuromorphic computing is starting to kick off now in a, in a in the proper way, in a more disruptive way than, he, than it did in the past. It's not a new idea, first of all. Yeah. Neuroscientists had ideas about how the brain actually works and how important are the connections between neurons and how relevant is this intricate network that can reconfigure since many, many years. The first ideas about neuromorphic computing are in the 80s. Of course, the technology was not good enough to create something that can have the computing power of even like a small brain. So today we can. For different reasons, technology, miniaturization, engineering, we can do that. Create something that can mimic number of neurons and number of connections of our brain. How quickly and efficiently they can reconfigure, they can actually learn things, that's a completely different matter. We don't know yet. The first one that will have the same scale of our brain is called Deep Thaus, and it will be launched, we switched on in April 2024, so this year, at the University of Sydney. And again, what makes it special compared to the predecessors, BrainScale, for example, was part of a project called Human Brain Project that ran 10 years ago. What is different is the scale. We are reaching like brain scale. So it's fascinating to actually have something that in principle can emulate with a big, exactly, emulate our brain. And what is interesting is that because it's inspired by the same architecture, it means that we can actually run some models on this. Not just having more efficient computing, that's one of the one of the aims. So we want to 
hopefully reduce the power. We want to have more computing power per words that we are that we are spending. But also, this can open a completely new field, which is how we can actually understand a bit better the way the brain works, the brain medications work on our mm. brain, what is the best way of learning something or the best way of treating some sort of neurodegenerative, for example, disease, by knowing how the model that is, in this, in this case, a mechanical, electrical model of our brain can respond to the same stimulus. Very exciting stuff. You can hear the enthusiasm oozing out of Domenico Vicinanza there from Anglia Ruskin University. That's all for this edition of Naked Neuroscience. I hope you'll join us next time for more cutting-edge neuroscience made simple. Until then, though, I'm James Titko. Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye for now. Thank you.